0: Hey everybody, my name is Pastor Brian Flammy of Emanuel Lutheran Church here in Roswell, New Mexico, and you're listening to Voice of the Pecos, a monthly theology theology digest from your local Lutheran Church Missouri Synod congregations in this area, found in places like Roswell, Carlsbad, Riodoso, Hobbs, Portales, Clovis, and Lovington. Joining me today is my co-host, Pastor Kyle Brown of Grace Lutheran Church in Hobbs and Our Savior Lutheran Church in Lovington. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well, Brian.
1: Thanks for having me on again.
0: Fantastic. Good. Well, there's a lot going on in the world right now. And so for this opening segment, I thought we would touch on especially uh, sort of this distinction between church and state. There's an understanding of this distinction in our founding documents of our country, in the First Amendment of the Constitution. There you have the uh, uh, what? It, so the you, the state can't establish right one church over another,
1: right? Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Uh, nor can it uh, dictate worship practice, right? Uh, that all belongs to our, our founding documents. But even before the separation of church and state was enshrined in the First Amendment of the Constitution. We as Lutherans have been speaking about the distinction of authority that belongs to the church and authority that belongs to the governor or the government for a long time, haven't we?
1: We have. We have. Our doctrine of two kingdoms is a much forgotten little part of our Lutheran uh, doctrines. Uh, That is, well, this is a good time to, uh, to dig into it a little bit.
0: Yeah, so remind me, what are the two kingdoms?
1: We have the, the kingdom of the, the left and the kingdom of the right. right? Now, now, of course, nowadays we don't talk too, too much of kingdoms, uh, but the kingdom of the left, of course, being the kingdom of the, the government, the authority that God has given to temporal and worldly affairs, and the kingdom of the right, of course, is the, the kingdom of the gospel, the kingdom of Christ, the place of the church in the world.
0: Very good. Yeah, it's the place of the church. And uh, the law has say in the kingdom of the left because it pertains to our bodies and lives on this world, right? It pertains to commandments four through ten that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, And part of that is the fourth commandment, which says honor your father and mother. And we as Lutherans know that honoring father and mother also includes honoring all authority. So if the police officer turns on the lights, you're going to have to pull over the car. Uh, if your governor comes out with some kind of mandate in a time of crisis, it is the duty of all Christians, according to the Fourth Commandment, to give the, the governor, a, you know, a, to, to hear her out and to, to, to do what she says. And for that reason, I think that we as Christians, when we use our Christian freedom, because remember, uh, we are above and free from all constraints of the law by the gospel. Uh, we use our Christian freedom in obedience to the law uh, to serve our neighbor in love. And so for a while uh, there in, in Hobbs and Lovington and here in Roswell, we shut the doors on Sunday and we found, well, uh, creative and sometimes uncomfortable ways to get together and uh, to worship together. That is until just recently. Uh, we're having regular services on Sunday. And the same is true for you, too. Right, Kyle? That's right.
1: Yes. Uh, at Grace, we, we started last week and and we'll begin again next week at Lovington. So
0: it's an exciting move
1: to, to be back in our building, of course.
0: Yeah. And, and we were able to open up because the governor said, hey, it's time to start uh, returning to business as normal. Here are the capacity restrictions on all these different buildings and for churches and for other sorts of businesses. And we've done our best to abide by them.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But something strange happened. Uh, I think it was not this last week, but the week before. When the governor was talking about uh, reopening New Mexico for business, she had very specific rules for churches. Now, some of this stuff is uh, pretty common sense. Like, uh, you should wash your hands. Okay. (laughs) I don't know if, if she has to say that, I think we understand by this point that we should be washing our hands. That's right. right. That everybody who's in the church building is subject to the state's public health orders. Oh, okay. I, that, that, that seems to be the case in every public place. So no big deal. Mm -hmm. And that I, I, I do want
1: to make this distinction, Brian, that is a matter of constitutionality also, right? That churches cannot be singled out any, any more than any other private business or anything. Uh, Right. And
0: so uh, you have a lot of pastors who have been saying, hey, if you're going to treat the small businesses in a certain way, like opening at 25 percent capacity, you have to treat the churches in the same Mm
1: -hmm. kingdom of the left hand right under the government.
0: Yeah, Uh, because when they start respecting churches as distinct from other parts of life, then it seems like the the government's trying to say something about religion and faith uh, that by our own government standards, they said that they wouldn't talk about, you know, right. Yeah. Well, OK, so most of these orders are, are, are most of the required action items are pretty straightforward that, that are a part of this health order, except there are two things. And I think only two things uh, that we as as evangelical Lutherans in New Mexico, we, we, we have to disagree with the governor and and disobey her. And the first one concerns uh, her. Uh, uh, Her order to use disposable, and I'm reading her words here, disposable one-time-use packages for elements used in religious practices.
1: And a a point of clarification here, right, Brian, is that we're not talking about plastic communion cups. These are are different.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen these before, folks, but... If you go to your religious supply store in your town, and because we're in southeastern New Mexico, it's probably going to be Protestant Baptist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you go into your when you go there and uh, you ask for some communion elements, this is likely what you're going to find. It looks like, Do you know, do you remember those little plastic uh, things that you would use to eat uh, uh, these little like uh, cracker sticks and they're on one side oh, yeah, yeah. of the package? Uh, there, were, there was cheese sauce. Do you remember though? It's
1: kind of like a, a Lunchables thing or something, right?
0: Right. So there are these divided up packets. And on one side of the packet, you have the cracker. On the other side, you have the cheese. It's a lot like that, exactly but like apparently this. for communion. And this is so this is very weird for Lutherans. Lutherans brains would never go to this place, I don't think. No. But other Protestants have probably because they don't see the Lord's Supper in the same way that we do, we see it as Jesus' body and blood. It is a holy meal, holy by virtue of Christ's presence there in his body and blood. For a lot of Protestants, they say it's just a symbol, a symbolic act in the church that, we, that they do to stay in compliance with Christ's orders.
1: <laughs> and I think a lot of those packets, the, the prepackaged communion elements, I believe that it's it's just grape juice. I don't I don't know if they have it available in wine even.
0: So, right for that. Yeah, that's reason. right. So you have. So on the one side with the bread, it's usually a pellet, of okay, some sort. That's right. So it looks like a pellet, and on the other side, uh, you have a little uh, uh, grape juice that you can drink down. And uh, in many Protestant churches, I've been to a Baptist church where I saw this happen. They handed out these packets down the aisles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and communion went something like this. The pastor stood at the back and said, we're going to have communion now. And it reminds us of Jesus' death. And everybody opened up their packets and they ate their little bread and they drank the little grape juice. That was what they called communion. Mm-hmm. The governor, as it said, hey, for all Christians, whether Protestant or Catholic or Lutheran, these are the things you're going to use for the Lord's Supper if you're going to have the Lord's Supper.
1: And that is just a step too far. That's something we can't get behind.
0: No. It, 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 and the reason why is this. Uh, so our governor has, uh, according to the law, much authority in this life. Uh, she has th- authority, if you want to think of this in terms of the Ten Commandments, uh, to, concerning things between the Fourth Commandment all the way through the Tenth Commandment. Uh, So, for instance, the governor gets to make laws and the government gets to to make and enforce laws concerning the fifth commandment, which is murder. Uh, And uh, the sixth commandment, which is marriage and adultery, uh, which is why marriage is a uh, recognized estate, uh, uh, you know, from from the point of view of the law. Uh, and when it comes to the, the Seventh Commandment, you know, it's wrong to steal. There are laws in the books concerning theft and libel for the Eighth Commandment. You can't just uh, slander someone publicly. And you that, that person's name has uh, legal protection around it. Uh, now, for covetousness, we could say that here in the United States, we don't actually have any laws concerning covetousness, which is probably right. <laughs> but But perhaps you could, you know, that you could see a a very controlled society elsewhere, uh, where if somebody uh, makes aspires to acquire somebody's good lands or or people uh, in an underhanded sort of a way, that that could be enforced by some court of some sort of law. I'm not sure what that would look like, but I think it's somewhere in the realm of possibility. Sure. So, anyways, Command four through ten belong to the governor, as far as I see. But that doesn't mean that she has anything to say or that she has any uh, authority to enforce commandments one through three, which pertain to what? Uh, uh, Having the Lord, having the Lord as our true and only God. Uh, Worshiping his name according to how his name is given to us in the Holy Scriptures. And then the third commandment is hearing his word and in faith, uh, holding to it and believing in it. And and, and uh, the uh, the uh, whereas you know commandments four through ten have the government enforcing it. Commandments one through three really are, can only be kept by faith in the gospel. That's so our clear. Lutheran confessions you know, they the, our Lutheran confessions even make this point that uh, there can't be an outward keeping of commandments one through three. Uh, in a legal sort of a outward bodily sort of a way. Um, that uh, whenever you go to a foreign land that is not Christian, sure, you're going to find gods uh, and sacred texts and places of pagan worship, but that's not an outward keeping of commandments one through three. I mean, it's like the opposite, right? right. <laughs> so their, their attempts at openly keeping those things are always going to fail. However, at their attempts at keeping commandments probably four through ten, there's probably going to be something there that does come close to God's revealed law in the Ten Commandments. Uh, so the, the the first three commandments can only be kept by faith, and who instructs us concerning the faith? I think is Christ alone. Jesus gives the rules concerning worship. So Christian worship isn't gathering together in a dark room to to. Uh, what what did the pagans do? They like sacrifice small animals, mm-hmm. I guess. Off, I offer
1: incense, yeah.
0: Offer up incense to the gods. No, no, Christian worship is very different. Why? Because Jesus said, uh, preach the gospel to the whole creation. It's because Jesus said, uh, whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. Oh, uh, that's from Mark 16:16. 16, 16. And of course, the Great Commission, uh, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Going to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Also in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus institutes the sacrament and says, Take, eat, this is my body. Uh, Take, drink, this is my blood. Those are the instituting words for worship. And they're not found in this world. They're not found through order of the government. Uh, They're found through the voice of our Savior Jesus alone.
1: And, and it's those things, of course, about which uh, Luhan Grisham ha- has no say. So that in this case, use, you know, using these disposable one-time packages for communion, uh, we simply cannot do that. We, we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but, but we render unto God what is God's, right?
0: Right. So the Christian actually has a lot of freedom, I think, when it comes to uh, administering the sacrament, like whether or not the chalices. I don't know, silver looking or gold looking. Sure, sure. (laughs) You know, that doesn't, but the key thing there is that to to figure out what to do for communion in the church, we're not looking at what's aesthetically pleasing, which is something that belongs to this world. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not looking at something that's uh, uh, even cost effective, right? We're not trying to be cheap. Right. Instead, we say, what is Jesus giving us? His holy body and blood, God's body and blood, you know? It's it's an amazing it's an amazing gift and for the forgiveness of sins. And because it's a a holy gift and a heavenly gift, uh, many Christian congregations, I think ours included, uh, have special vessels uh, to hold the blood of Christ. Knowing that the vessels, uh, we're we're giving them a kind of high honor (laughs) because they hold the great gift of Jesus's blood that is for your forgiveness when you drink it with faith. And so instead of using uh, a plastic Dixie cup, right, like that we would throw away at the end, we, we, we use something that's, that's, uh, that has some value and some heft to it mm-hmm. because we want the message to be conveyed to our people that these vessels are holding something that is holy and sacred and heavenly and nothing to do with this world. And so, yes, communion as a meal looks very different from all the other earthly meals that we have. Uh, and so it may be fine for the Baptists if they hold the Lord's Supper in such symbolic, in such a symbolic sense that they you know, eat it like one of these snack packs that you give to your kids. But for the Lutherans especially, where we see this isn't symbolically Jesus' body and blood, but it is his true body and blood in, with, and under the elements of bread and wine. We're not going to treat it like a picnic. Mm-hmm. We're not going to take the cup that was holding the blood of, of Christ and throw it away. Because we don't want to give the impression, I think, to our congregants or to the world that this is just uh, another meal or, you know, a meal that might have some symbolic value, but that's about it. No, this is a heavenly meal. It is not to be found anywhere else in the world except here in church. And Jesus is the one who tells us that it's true. The governor has nothing to say about it. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, and to get back to our uh, discussion of the two kingdoms, uh, the Lord's Supper belongs to the kingdom of the right. It belongs to the gospel and the authority of Christ as revealed through the scriptures alone. Uh, and so as long as, it's, and as long as we understand that, that it belongs to the, the authority of God's right-hand kingdom, the authority of preaching and word and gospel and faith, uh, then it's not surprising that the Lutherans would say to the governor, no, we're not going to obey you right now. That's not necessary. Uh, but sorry. we will obey her in every other way possible, I think.
1: And this is what you see, Brian, is that those things that, that truly make up the divine service, they are the preaching of the gospel, the word, and the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, right? And, mm. and all other things are and can be extraneous. They can be nice and they can be great, uh, but those core fundamental uh, the word in the sacraments that they must remain right
0: now. That's absolutely right. Uh, there's something else
1: uh, in here that I'm, I'm really curious about asking you about. Uh, because also in the required COVID safe practices for houses of worship, she includes to discontinue choir or congregation singing or chanting. What do you think about that?
0: Oh man, this is this is an open joke, uh, uh, that, uh. We have a lot of uh, pastors in our in our circuit who have been trained up in the practice of chanting, but I think it's actually not been the practice historically in many of our congregations for at least the pastor and the congregation both to chant. And so, like here at Emmanuel for a long time, the pastor was the one to talk, and then. Sure. Uh, the congregation would chant their portions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, I, so you know how this goes. Uh, uh, one of my elders discovers that the governor says the pastor shall not chant, and he comes running into my office saying, "Oh, pastor, <laughs> I got you now. It could go back to the way it was." <laughs> uh, now, interestingly, uh, out of
1: curiosity, Brian, do you actually know yeah. why that was the the way it was?
0: Oh, yeah, of course. That that that's a an old. The, the old TLH yes. from 1942 had included the musical notation for the congregation, but it left it out, unfortunately, for the pastor. And sadly, many pastors took that as their cue to basically not sing not anymore. Do it
1: right. And, you know, even for myself, if you don't have to get up there and sing in front of people solo style, yeah, why wouldn't you be comfortable with that?
0: Yeah. But here's the point. Uh, singing belongs to the worship of faith. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, and, and everywhere in the Holy Scriptures, everywhere, where God reveals His Word, the Holy Christian Church responds not just with words of praise and thanksgiving, but with songs of praise mm-hmm. and thanksgiving. So, all the Lutherans out there, remember the explanation of the second commandment: uh, the second commandment be, "Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain." What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear. Uh, you satanic arts were are a liar deceived by his name, but call upon it in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. And what belongs to that is, is to sing our thanksgiving. Uh, uh, when you look in the Holy Scriptures, what happens when Mary hears the word of the Lord? Uh, or, or rather, how does it go? So John leaps in Elizabeth's womb. Mm-hmm. You remember this? John the And and uh, and Mary hears the greeting from Elizabeth, and then Mary breaks into song. (laughs) Yes, yeah. And and that's not a weird thing in the Bible. That's a normal thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, and of course, you could study this historically to see that in the uh, that when you look at the Psalms, the Book of Psalms, it's filled with uh, notations and notes. Uh, for the choir master or for the one who is leading the the responsive singing in the temple for the divine service there.
1: And in fact, the the whole Hebrew old Testament is marked with all these various accents that would help you to chant it. If you can actually read those chant notations.
0: Yeah. So the, the whole old Testament can be sung aloud. That's amazing. It is. And, and it was the practice in Lutheran churches as well. Uh, basically, in the old world, in the old Lutheran church there, I don't know what they've done over the past 150, 200 years, but it used to be that uh, the Holy Scriptures were always chanted aloud. That's right. Uh, yeah, it's, it was- it's an amazing thing. Talk to your pastors more if you want to learn more about that. You can a- they can actually find things like on Spotify uh, of uh, 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 players' guilds getting together to perform the Lutheran divine service from hundreds of years ago, because it was a work of art and a thing of beauty. Mm -hmm. And part of that beauty and part of that art uh, was the singing of the, the, the scripture lessons. There is one place in the, coincidentally in the divine service where we we retain the practice of singing the Holy scriptures. Yeah. I mean the pastor singing them aloud for the congregation. Do you know what that is? Yeah.
1: It's uh, it's uh, the, 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 uh, the words of institution you, you, to use the fancy term the verba right the, the words right. of our Lord when we consecrate the bread and the wine uh, into to the body and the blood of the Lord And that right it, those, yeah. those words were set to this is this is the genius of Luther right because in the 1500s according to the Roman mass you would whisper those words silently right it was it was this great mysterious secret. And, uh, and Luther said, no, this is, this is pure gospel proclamation. And to prove it, I'm going to set it to music and not just any music. I'm going to set it to the chant tone that the gospel lesson is to be read according to. So, so when you hear yeah. your pastor chanting the, those words of institution, uh, that in fact is the same tone that the gospel uh, would have customarily also been chanted to
0: and it is a very lutheran thing to do it is. it's it's not roman catholic in the least no
1: it's not <laughs> roman catholic it's not methodist it's not it's not anything it's that is a uniquely lutheran practice
0: and we do it so that the gospel can be heard we can, we do it so that people can see that these words are so precious and and pure and full of promise and hope and comfort and forgiveness that we sing them mm-hmm. because of the joy of them it's just
1: like putting putting the the bread and the wine in the silver or the gold plate or the patent or the chalice to show the importance of it. So we do that also with our very voices,
0: right? That is, if your pastor can sing. Yeah,
1: that's fair. <laughs> that's fair.
0: I know plenty of faithful men who do who are tonally challenged, and 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 they know it, and so they'll do their best. When the when congregation says, Pastor, can you chant these portions? The <laughs> service will like, they'll say, okay, I'll, I'll do my best. Right. They'll work tirelessly with the organist. But sometimes, for the sake of clarity, right, they may speak those portions. And that's, I understand it completely.
1: And, and that is the better option if, for the sake of clarity, uh, it's easier to understand that way.
0: Yeah, that's right. If you slur the words as you're singing them, that's which true. is like a modern way of singing, you just kind of slang everything together, mm-hmm. then it's not worth it. Yeah. It'd be better just to speak clearly for the gospel's sake. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's why, and so to, to, to sum up our, 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 our discussion here, we have this Lutheran theology of the two kingdoms, which, uh, which is analogous to the power of the law being enforced on this earth through the government. And the power of the gospel being, being enforced on this earth through the word of Jesus, uh, as, as uh, given to us in the sacred scriptures. And in the sacred scriptures, it tells us that what belongs to worship is, is communion in this way, uh, that is with uh, bread and wine, that is promised to be Jesus' body and blood. And that it, it, part, it has always been part of the, 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 the reception of faith, that when these things are, are received, the gospel The Christians sing. The Christians have always sung. They've always sung, right? Now, if we decide to sing or not to sing, that's up to us Mm -hmm. as Christians. According to the freedom of faith. The problem is when the governor tries to exceed the boundary of her authority, which belongs to commandments 4 through 10, right? That's right. right. And then she wants to talk about commandments 1 through 3. That's when the Lutherans put up the walls and say, nope, can't go there. We love you. We respect you. And we want to obey you. But when God gives a clear word concerning worship and faith, that's what we must obey. Well said. Okay, so uh, we also have going on right now these, these sad episodes of, uh, boy, this happened in Minneapolis, okay. which is kind of a, a Lutheran area. It is. Uh, where this one police officer uh, put his weight on the neck of a man. And I, and I think that he's now been charged with murder while, so the police officer had this man in custody and the police officer handled the man in such a way that he was injured and, and then died of his injuries. And it's very tragic and sad. Uh, nevertheless, this has resulted in, in, uh, in riots all around the country, uh, 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 riots against abuses of power and authority, uh, particularly at the hands of the police, those who have been given authority to enforce law mm-hmm. uh, in our country. And so the and and, and uh, so I don't think that Christians are necessarily against protest. No, uh, because you 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 probably participated in some of these marches for life. Absolutely. right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely,
0: and that is a, a form of a protest. Yeah, yeah, so that was a kind of protest. Usually, you 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 like march around the state or the government building. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have, like, the streets blocked off for you while you're doing that. Um, usually it's in coordination with the local authorities. Right. And uh, maybe some of these protests against uh, the overstepping of police authority has started off in uh, in this sort of a way. But uh, we, we've seen all over the country that violence has gotten mixed in. And, uh, like, stores have been broken into and looted. You know, property has been stolen. Mm-hmm people have been hurt because of the, the aggressiveness and the intention to hurt on the part of others. Now, as Christians, we have to, and, and I was, I'm interested to hear what you think about this, Kyle. As Christians, we can say that it's, it's fine to publicly disagree with government authority and to speak plainly and openly about abuses of authority, uh, while at the same time, I think we should, as Christians, respect that authority certainly obey it insofar far as possible and 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 part of that is that when i protest i don't and if i feel uh, you know if i feel grieved on any point of of their use of power and authority that doesn't give me permission to break all the law or to disregard the entire law Mm -hmm. right and and for us as christians
1: um our primary understanding for that of course is not that the law comes from these police officers. And so therefore we don't have to listen to the law, right? We know that the no. source of the law is is far above the police officers. In fact, it's far above the governors and the president. The law is itself is is from God to be upheld by the governors, to be upheld by the the mayors and the and the police officers, the uh, the boots on the ground, if you will. and And so for that reason, just because, uh, now um, it is it is an it's a tragic thing that this one police officer um, has has clearly overstepped his bounds of authority and abused that authority and uh, and we certainly disagree with that and we certainly grieve uh, with the family of George Floyd and all those who are are affected in similar ways um, but but we do have to ask then what is our response to that and the response cannot be to anarchy. It cannot be to to overthrow the authority that God has placed on this earth through the kingdom, through through the left-hand kingdom.
0: Yeah, so that's the great advantage. We actually understand that there is a left-hand kingdom, and we know exactly what belongs to it. It's the Ten Commandments. Right. And since we know the Ten Commandments with such clarity, we know that it's inappropriate to respond to evil with evil, and that is breaking the commandments just because other people started breaking them first
1: and and clearly There's... Here, clearly here brian too these aren't acts that are specifically even directed against police officers sadly these are their fellow neighbors that they're doing this to innocent people destroying huh. places of business and even homes and whatnot
0: huh. Yeah, okay. So, uh, it, 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 yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the people that get sucked into the, the wickedness of, of anger are oftentimes people who had nothing to do with the original sin that caused all the anger to begin with.
1: And so sin begets sin.
0: Yeah, that's right. Now, now Christians know the appropriate response to sin. And we've known this for, you know, since the beginning of the world. Sin is never fixed by more sin. No. Sin can only be preached against according to the law. That's what happens to sin. So, so with sin, uh, the, 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 so a righteous protest would be a public acknowledgement by, uh, maybe the, the angered crowds that what had happened was maybe, it was a, a sin against the fourth commandment since the legal authority used its authority in an unrighteous way against a person mm-hmm. who had rights. And, uh, and had a right to his life, you know.
1: Absolutely.
0: Uh, it's also a, a, a sin against the fifth commandment. It was murder on the part of maybe the police officer. That's yet Absolutely. to be proven, of course, in law.
1: Right. Law, the law will but, need to uphold that.
0: But, but again, that? here, the, the, the response isn't in taking uh, aggressive actions against the neighbor. The, uh, the response is in, in speaking clearly to the sin.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Isn't that something? Like, remember when Jesus was struck? Before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, Jesus asked the question, uh, if I have sinned, speak to the sin. If not, why did you hit me? Mm, right, I, right. Yes. You know, he's telling him, this is not what you do if you think that I've wronged you. If, I, if I've wronged you, you speak to the sin and leave it to the uh, uh, godly ordered authorities uh, to respond with appropriate punishment within the bounds of that authority. Mm-hmm. Right, Absolutely. Okay, uh, that's all I, re- I think we, we need to say about that. We've, uh, we've, we've talked quite a bit about the two kingdoms, about uh, how and when it's appropriate to disobey governing authorities. And also we have coming up a really great interview with Pastor Jason Rust of our Shepherd of the Hills Lutheran Church in Rio And that's up in the mountains. That's in the nice, pretty, just <laughs> delightful part of southeastern New Mexico. And so that's what we'll be listening to next. You're, uh, uh, thanks for joining us once again. Uh, uh, and you're listening to Voice of the Pecos, and we'll be back in a moment. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Voice of the Pecos. Today, we're going to talk to Pastor Jason Rust of Riodoso, New Mexico, and uh, ask him about his experiences, both uh, before becoming a pastor Mm -hmm. and also now as a pastor. So, yeah, let's learn a little bit about you, Pastor Rust. Welcome to the show, by the way. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, the first question is, tell us a little bit about where you're from.
2: So I grew up in Mesa, Arizona, which for those of you that don't know, it's uh, the valley, the Phoenix Valley there on the east side of the valley, and uh, lived there until, uh, until I graduated from high school, attended Concordia University in Irvine, California, graduated in 2003 uh, with a degree in Christian education and leadership. Really? And yeah. Wow. And decided it was basically the degree that you would get if you were going on to become a DCE. Mm. Um, But about halfway through my time there, I transitioned into preparing for seminary. So I started taking the languages, uh, started uh, taking the doctrine classes that I needed to, to be proficient in order to enter the seminary.
0: Very good. Now, help us out. What is a DCE? A Director of Christian Education.
2: Okay. Um, And so... DCE is a pretty wide category of things uh, to assist the pastoral office in. Um, I should clarify that that, that's my particular view of of the way the DCE functions. It's an assistant to the pastoral office. Uh, So uh, the DCE may assist in um, some of the education aspects of the pastoral office, whether that's youth education or adult education. Uh, the DCE may assist in providing, helping provide some of the other ministry programming that a church would want to use, um, again, all in assistance to the pastoral
3: office.
0: Very good. I think my dad, who uh, is a, or he was a pastor, he just retired last year, uh, for the last maybe 10 years of his ministry at my home congregation, they got a DCE called out there. Mm-hmm to assist with uh, youth education programs. Okay. And she has become, well, a wonderful addition to the congregation uh, and uh, very helpful uh, uh, to my dad and, and his work as, as pastor there and very helpful to the, the rest of the folks. So. Yeah. Very that's, good.
2: That's the way, I think that's the best way to envision what the DCE does. Good. Is assist the congregation in serving in these particular areas, so. And my wife, uh, Rebecca, she is a certified DCE. Uh, oh, nice. I served as a DCE for 10 years in yeah. St. Louis. So. Does she
0: have like a particular uh, way of using her DCE skills through the congregation up there in Redosa? So? Yeah.
2: So she still participates in the life of the church, whether it's uh, with the evangelism board or. Some of the big things that she does is she helps out uh, by running our vacation Bible school program mm-hmm. um, and utilizing volunteer as a volunteer, utilizing her skills in that way.
0: Okay, cool. So she doesn't have a call, but she definitely puts her her uh, skills to, to use.
2: Absolutely, yeah. very
0: good, very good. Now, did you ever have any previous jobs before becoming a pastor? Any other failed career paths, or perhaps just career paths that you you maybe dabbled in and turned
2: away from? Um, You know, I had aspirations for other career paths, um, but never anything that I took seriously. Or uh, I should say none of the other jobs I ever had fit into any of those particular career paths. Um, Uh So I worked your part time jobs as a high school student, uh, you know, an undergraduate at the seminary um, that were all wonderful and beneficial and and great. Uh, They did the number one task, which was make some money. And um, but none of them were some of the career aspirations I had prior to. Uh, deciding to become a pastor so
0: very good uh i always want to ask that question because i did try a career before i became a pastor it didn't go all that well so it kind of limited my options to the point where i knew well let's be a pastor or or maybe not be happy with what i'm doing
2: yeah well i think that's um I think all everybody that wants to enter the ministry has to ask themselves that question. Yeah. Would you be satisfied in doing anything other than than being a pastor? And if the answer is yes, then you should really go do that. Yes. Um. And and if the answer is no, then yeah, seek out pastoral ministry because it's the only way you're going to do it the way it should
0: be done. All right. Now you mentioned that during your studies mm-hmm. you started shifting away from the DCE program towards uh, the holy ministry. Mm-hmm. And so tell us a little bit about how did you figure that out? How did you uh, start thinking about yourself as being a pastor? And what does that mean to you?
2: Yeah. So even the transition into uh, something in the realm of church work was a transition. Mm. Um, that was never a vocation that I sought out originally. Yeah. Um, I, when I was 18, we had a vicar at our congregation, uh, pastor James Miller, James Patrick Miller. And, uh, and uh, he uh, took me out to Fuddruckers. Um, I was an 18-year-old punk, and uh, he said, "He said, Jason, you're going to be a pastor." And uh, I laughed at him. Um, I enjoyed my time in youth uh, with our youth group. I enjoyed our time uh, participating in the life of the church uh, for sure. Never saw myself as that being a career. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, I was really more interested in probably one of two fields of study. Uh, following in my father's footsteps to become a firefighter. Oh, um, cool. He was a, a captain on our fire department back home and uh, really wanted to do that or probably something in the medical field. Um, I was uh, played a lot of sports. I got injured a lot playing all those sports, so I spent a lot of time with a physical therapist, mm. and I thought that was a great career as well. Um, I laughed, though, because when I found out a physical therapist had to go to school to get a master's degree for two years, I was like, oh, no, that's <laughs> way too much. Uh, and so I really wanted to be a firefighter. My dad said, um, he'd love to help me get on the fire department. Um, he said after I got my four year degree though, he would okay. agree to help. So, okay. So I, I went off to get a four year degree and, um, wanted to go to the school that all my friends were going to, which was Northern Arizona university in Flagstaff, Arizona, and uh, somehow, by the grace of God, somewhere between my pastor and my mom convinced me that Concordia University in Irvine was a great deal. There was a four-to-one girl-to-guy ratio. It was near the beach.
0: Um, that does sound like a pretty good deal.
2: Everything pointed <laughs> in that direction. So that's how I ended up in, at Concordia University <laughs> in Irvine.
0: I, I've also heard that among the Concordias, Irvine has quite the reputation as being a scholarly hotspot. You know, the I, I just... I, I used to study a little bit about apologetics, and it seems like all the Missouri Synod apologists hang out around Irvine. Yeah. So you have Rod Rosenblatt out there. We had some great theologians. Um,
2: of course, that I didn't appreciate that at first when I first got there. Yeah. Um, but as I wrapped up my four years there, um, every year I became more and more enamored with and more and more appreciative of the theological uh, studies at Concordia and Irvine there uh, great great faculty uh, that were working
0: there. Fantastic. All right, so uh, uh, still I mean so you, you you started thinking about church work in general. Oh yeah right and then and so that started you on the DCE path while you were there at Irvine mm-hmm. and then that something was, changed.
2: Well that was so in, in hindsight I always kind of see that as my compromise. okay right? So I'm like, well, you know don't really want to be a pastor. Then I'll work in a church. That sounds good. And so it kind of started along that path. Yeah. And eventually, you know, the way things work out and the way God works, you go, okay, I submit. Yeah, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll go full in. We'll go all in on, on being a pastor. Okay. Um, but really, I mean, there wasn't a lot of a, a real kind of spiritual sort of, I mean, I know there probably was. But it yeah. wasn't some, like something in my mind where I was huh. like, oh, the Lord is working on me right um it was it was probably far more earthly in a lot of ways yes um because um it was a combination of some of my natural talents mm-hmm. um uh a a natural talent for being up in front of people uh, uh i had some some natural gifts in systematic theology that came very naturally to me to be able to study and understand uh, my historical perspective and my appreciation for history history really led to an uh, 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 what am I, An affinity for for the Reformation history that we had as as part of our Lutheran heritage. Yeah. Um. So all those things. Um, and and probably more than anything else. Um. Regardless of what career I, I wanted, mm. I, I saw myself in two things. One, I wanted it to be with people, and two, I really wanted it to be with um, something in the realm of caring, um, and that that was kind of for me something that I saw as consistent, no matter what I wanted to do. Yeah. And so um, when those natural gifts started appearing that fit with pastoral ministry um, and uh, my, my, the things I found myself getting delight and joy in hmm. um, through my college experience um, all revolved around ministry. Um, that was kind of how I kind of melded those two things together. Um, I kind of blame my dad a little bit uh, for two reasons. Well, I can blame my mom and my dad, uh but my dad gave some advice, which is good sound advice. find something you enjoy doing and see if there's somebody willing to pay you to do it right um and the things I found myself enjoy doing were were around the the pastoral ministry realm uh, so
0: that's fantastic, yeah. yeah, as Lutherans, we believe that God works through means here on this earth mm-hmm. right, and so the, the The fact that you had a, a vicar at your home congregation who took you out for lunch and said, "By the way, you should be a pastor uh these are the kinds of things that the Lord uses yeah. through the church, through the voice of the church to call men into the holy ministry and uh And so I think that your story is not at all unique that many Missouri Synod pastors, instead of having God you know beaming a, a message straight into their heads, probably were surrounded by friends. And family and situations that led them down the path towards the seminary.
2: Yeah, I, it's I find it's always typically the stories about coming into the pastoral ministry tend to be fairly organic. Yes.
0: Um, you
2: know, and again, looking back, you can see God working through those things. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, but they tend to, yeah, you're right. They don't tend to be lightning bolt experiences. Uh, they tend to be fairly organic experiences where you you end up there going, yeah, this is this is right. This is
0: where I belong. Hmm. Now, there are two seminaries in our Missouri Synod. Yes. One is the Theological Seminary <laughs> up
2: at uh, Fort Wayne. And the other one is the Flagship Seminary of the LCMS.
0: Yeah, I don't know where that word flagship comes <laughs> from. Now, uh, the, so... Seriously, historically speaking, the Fort Wayne Seminary
3: mm-hmm.
0: started there in Fort Wayne. It moved to uh, Springfield, Illinois, and then back to Fort Wayne, and it was known as the Practical Seminary. Okay, it was the place where the guys would go after they've had a little bit of life experience, right. but they weren't. It wasn't seen as the high academic seminary. It was the place where second career guys would go to train up to become pastors. Mm-hmm. Traditionally speaking, I'm not sure that's so true anymore. There's a lot of parody between both seminaries, academically speaking, yeah. I think. Uh, so nevertheless, a guy has to make a choice. Which seminary am I going to go to? And so why St. Louis? And uh, and uh, did you think about Fort Wayne ever?
2: Yeah, actually, I, I went for a visit uh, to Fort Wayne during symposium. Great. Uh, I, I, our class went um, yes. as part of the university university. Uh, Dr. Stephen Mueller took us there, and it was great. It was a wonderful experience. I marveled at what was uh, being spoken on and taught, and most of it went over my head. Uh, <laughs> and I thought, man, uh, I've got a lot of work to do if I'm going to get to a spot where I can understand what's what they're talking about. Uh, and uh, and it was a great experience. It was really good. Um, uh, but I had never I had never been to St. Louis, Missouri. Mm but i had been to fort wayne indiana ah and please forgive me for anybody living in fort wayne indiana i chose st louis missouri
0: <laughs> yeah
2: not based on the seminaries just sheerly location
0: wow okay
2: having grown up in arizona yes. having lived in southern california yeah we went to Fort Wayne, Indiana in January. And it was like
0: 12 degrees outside. And it
2: was miserable. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I don't know what St. Louis is like, but it has to be better than this. So I chose
0: St. Louis, Missouri. <laughs> That's great. That, you know what? I have to admit, you know, I, I've spent a lot of my life in Fort Wayne, both as a kid and as a grown-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of my kids were born in Fort Wayne, and they were both born there in the dead of winter. And the winters are brutal. I do not miss Fort Wayne mm. for the yeah. climate. That's for sure. Yeah. Southeastern uh, South New Mexico definitely has an yeah. the advantage there. <laughs> that is, if you ask me.
2: Yeah. Oh, I I totally agree. As one who grew up in the
0: desert, yeah. this is way better. Well, but, yeah. Well, fantastic. Tell us a little bit about life at St. Louis. What was that like, attending classes there, preparing for the ministry?
2: Yeah. So I had a wonderful Uh, kind of introduction into seminary life because um, even though I had taken Greek uh, in undergraduate, um, I really felt like I needed to do it again. So I didn't even bother taking the entrance exam test. Um, I wanted to kind of nail the Greek down a little bit better. Uh, So I went into the nine-week immersive course. Uh, Dr. Bruce Shuckard was our our professor for it, and he was great. Hmm. Uh, You know, kind of a drill sergeant approach to it. Um, I had a rhythm down. Um, got to, you know, uh, spend this enormous amount of time with the same group of guys all summer long, which is wonderful. Many of those guys are, uh, you know, still close friends. And uh, and that's kind of how I started my seminary experience. It's kind of that reintroduction of the Greek, you know, nailed that, really secure. Um, some of my, uh, there was actually only two of us that went into the seminary out of Irvine. We had a fairly sizable class by pre-seminary standards, maybe a half a dozen or more of us that were all in that same class, but only two of us ended up at the seminary the year immediately after we graduated, and undergraduate. Hmm. And uh, so Luke Hennings and I got to hang out together, and, and uh, so we became even closer friends during our seminary experience. Um, I loved the camaraderie. Uh, loved the the, uh, the learning Mm -hmm. Um, Again, kind of gravitated towards that systematic theology was kind of my natural um, uh, inclination. But the exegetical theology and historical theology and practical theology was a wonderful experience as well. Um, Got involved in in mission orientation type practical theology. So uh, preparing to be a missionary of some sort, um, desiring to be a, a, knowing that, that there was so much work here in the United States to do, that being an overseas missionary probably wasn't where I was headed. Yes. Uh, but to be a, 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 a quote-unquote national missionary, yeah. Um, uh, during when the when the synod was organized in that way, um, and so I studied to be a national missionary. So I actually had a deferred vicarage. Um, so my vicarage was my fourth year. Which was it was great in one way. It lent itself to being less disruptive in terms of when you start ministry, to, just to kind of continue on. But it was bad also in the camaraderie way. So yeah. I missed that last year with my you class. Went
0: out of step with your class. Yeah, and that, so
2: their fourth year, right. I missed out on, um, yeah. which was kind of awkward uh, in many
0: ways. So to fill the folks in, the way the seminary usually works is is a four year program. The first two years are in the classroom and you're studying, uh, you're, you're putting in the bulk of your work towards your Master of Divinity degree. The third year is typically, not in your case, of course, mm-hmm. Jason, but, yeah. but typically it's your vicarage year, which is an internship under a pastor somewhere in the United States, though they have done overseas vicarages. Right. Uh, in fact, I, I know a vicar right now who's in Sri Lanka. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. uh, uh, It's the son of a pastor up in Denver. Uh, Anyways, uh, but uh, after this vicarage year, this internship year, folks usually come back, which is, I found, to be very helpful. It was like an after-action time. You know, you spend your time debriefing with your professors, bringing all of the experiences that you had doing, uh, uh, helping and assisting with the Holy Ministry back into the classroom, and it gave everything more of a real feel about it you know it was no longer theory it was no longer book knowledge everything that we were studying in the books had to be applied in the real world otherwise it was useless Mm. and so I found that to be very helpful but like you said there are these cases especially if you're thinking about going into a national mission situation where you do your three years of study you do your fourth year in that internship sort of Right. Uh, in that internship stage. And then you transition from that into full, full-time Correct. pastoral ministry.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that was the general idea. So it was kind of that third year where it was, uh, once again, that academic study when I didn't have that after action. Um, I spent a lot of time relying on other people's experiences. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it was kind of nice because I got to hear from lots of different guys um, their struggles, their, the things they noticed, the things they found useful. Um, and so I just tried to glean as much wisdom as I could from them uh, during that final year of academic work before I transitioned into my vicarage and then transitioned into the pastor.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. You're surrounded by a bunch of fourth year guys uh, who have been through it and they're asking all the right questions. Mm-hmm. You have to pay attention. I sit and listen. <laughs> that's exactly it. Very good. <laughs> so, Well, tell us about your history as a pastor. You didn't start uh, in the holy ministry. Uh, in Rio Doso. You were in St. Louis, correct? I was, yeah.
2: So I did my field work. Uh, so let me back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Transitioning from Southern California to St. Louis, Missouri, my wife needed a DCE internship because she graduated with her four-year degree, but still necessary to get a fifth, you know, her fifth year is her internship that she has to be under a pastor for. And it needed to be in St. Louis because that's where I was going for school. Uh, So, uh, through a variety of contacts um, and and some not insignificant persuasion, um, a congregation in downtown St. Louis called Historic Trinity Lutheran Church, uh, being pastored by David Marth um, at the time, uh, was willing to take Rebecca on as a DCE intern. Mm. They were a growing congregation, even though they were in kind of a downtown setting, Uh, a revitalized neighborhood sort of thing and uh, they were growing and and, um, there was there was necessary work to be done by by a trained person and so uh, pastor marth uh, and the congregation called rebecca as an intern and then called her again as a dce then a year later which means that that's where my field education was so I got to stay there at Historic Trinity Lutheran Church in Soulard, uh, Saint, right there in St. Louis, and it was great. We had a good time, and uh, Rebecca had a lot of success as a DCE. Uh, the congregation really uh, enjoyed having her as a DCE, and I enjoyed being there as my part of my field education. One of the things that the congregation, unbeknownst, they didn't know that I was interested in national missions, but one of the things that they noticed was that there was a a developing neighborhood in the downtown, quote-unquote, loft district, um, where basically downtown's being revitalized. People are moving in that didn't used to live there. And so, um, so it kind of just happened that I was interested in national mission. This was a move the congregation wanted to have happen. And... Um, so in addition to my field work responsibilities, I also started doing research and development on what would a mission look like to this
0: neighborhood. Mm. All right. So you started developing a plan for uh, ministering and <laughs> yeah. to these folks in this loft district? Yeah. So it was really about, um,
2: you know, kind of the foundational understanding of that mission was Trinity was only two and a half miles away. Right. I mean, in, in St. Louis, you, you can't swing a dead cat and not hit a loose. They're everywhere. Mm. So why do we need another Lutheran church? Well, one of the things we identified in downtown St. Louis, it was a hyper-local environment. Um, so people, they, if, if they didn't have to, they didn't want to leave downtown. So our theory, running theory on a mission, was what if we put stationed ministry, warden and Sacrament ministry, in that environment? Then? Mm-hmm. And that became my primary responsibility, though. Uh, so uh, between small groups, um, worship um, and then pastoral care—that's um, really what I ended up spending most of my time in. However, I was also associate pastor at Historic Trinity. Okay. So I served in uh, preaching and care ministry there, um, leading small groups there, and um, doing some other work. That's man. Right. Sounds busy. Yeah, and uh and as a fellow Cubs fan, you can also understand some of the deep struggles that I had there. Because oh, yes. as a Cubs I'm a Cubs fan. Right. Um uh, multi generational Cubs fan. And uh I lived there and I took a lot of grief as a Cubs fan because my time there I think they won two World Series. They were in a total of four World Series. Something ridiculous like that.
0: Cardinals fans are vicious. Yeah, yeah, they are arrogant and mean. They they hold their success in front of your face all the time. That's right. Which yeah. was why in uh, two thousand and sixteen, the blessed year of victory. Yes, the Cubs yeah. were able to to win the title, and uh, that was a very sweet, a very sweet victory indeed. <laughs> all right, because now so, we don't have to be the the losers anymore. No. We actually have won once.
2: Yeah. No, it's, it's it feels really good. Yeah. But but I served there for. Uh, I think eight years. Eight years. Okay. As, as associate pastor at Trinity and Good. mission planter in downtown, and uh, served on a number of different boards with the LCMS uh, and our regional um, kind of work that we did, uh, and it was great. I learned. I learned a lot. Um, and yeah, it was fun.
0: Good. Now and then the call came to pastor the Saints of God at our Savior Lutheran Church in Riadoso. Shepherd of, the Shepherd, hills, of the hills. So Shepherd of the Hills. Yeah, got to get their names right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Shepherd <laughs> of the Hills. Shepherd of the hills.
2: Um, so on yep. paper, it was really funny to get that call. Um, it came at a time of transition at Trinity um, anyway. So it was a good time to transition. I knew it was a good time to transition away from Trinity. I didn't know into what yet. Mm. Um, but um, at the time, uh, on paper, it was really funny to get the call from Ruidosa Because here I was, urban mission planter in a revitalized loft, downtown area, thousands of people all kind of crammed together in real close proximity uh, to get a call to a a rural resort town in New Mexico, Mm. um, whose name I didn't even know. So I I, I got the call to ask if I was open to receiving a call. And I said, yes. And then I couldn't remember the name of the congregation. I couldn't remember the town. So I had to go back up and do like backwards research through, uh, you know, through the internet there to Okay, Ruidosa, that was it. Uh, and that kind of sat on the burner for a while as they went through their call process, because mm. um, I wasn't the, the first man that they called, mm. um, as they went through their call process after they were in transition. And, and then out of the, not out of the blue, but certainly kind of unbeknownst to me, in, in early September, I got a call saying that the saints at Shepherd of the Hills had unanimously elected to call me as their next pastor, and I began the deliberation process, um, It was made exponentially more complicated because there were uh, one other congregation extended a call a week later. Wow. And another congregation, I was one of two finalists for an associate pastor job. Uh, When it rains? All at the same time. Yeah. So so I was deliberating four calls at the time, then basically. Um, And just kind of. And again, like you said, God works through means. Yes. And by a variety of means. Um, Ruidoso ended up being the spot where I saw my gifts being used really well, where I saw my family fitting in really well and, uh, and yeah um, we made the transition in November of 2014 uh, to come to Ruidoso, New Mexico and uh, said goodbye to the saints at Historic Trinity Lutheran Church in downtown St. Louis and, uh, and uh, that was a tear filled event and it was sad to say goodbye Um, But I also trust that the Lord had us in his
0: hands when he transitioned us into Ruidoso. And uh, it's been a joy to serve the saints at Shepherd of the Hills. Good. Um, And you have been here in southeastern New Mexico for six years then? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, this fall will be our sixth uh, sixth anniversary here in in New Mexico. Excellent. Yeah. All right. So what are some of the joys of ministry up there uh, at Shepherd of the Hills?
2: So, one of the things that I really latched onto during my first 8 years, and you know, I don't know if people kind of recognize this, you don't come out of the seminary a good pastor. <laughs> you come out of the seminary equipped to become a good pastor. Yeah. Uh but it's a learning process, right? right? And and for me it's that first 5 years that are so crucial in learning. At least it was in in my my walk of ministry, learning and growing so quickly and so so much. Um, so one of the things I really walked away from my time in St. Louis was um, the key uh, the component of relationships is so key uh, to to ministry and um, to to pastor people you really have to love them Mm. and to love them you have to get to know them and spend time with them yeah Um, to be appropriately vulnerable with them um, so that they can learn to love you and show you that love in return Mm. um and it opens up that door, uh, to providing care, um, to speaking into the lives of people through God's, with God's word, mm. um, God's word is being spoken through us as a pastor into their lives, um, in a way that's profound, um, that I, that I probably didn't appreciate in the same way in the early years of my ministry, mm. how important and vital those relationships are. Mm. Um, and that when there's conflict, you know, um, when, when there's struggle, um, my nat- all of our natural tendency is to want to step back a little bit, put our put some distance between us. And one of the things that I've really latched onto is when that happens, um, I actually step closer to and and make more contact with and spend more time with that person that I'm engaged with. Um, if there's any conflict, and um, and I think that has led to some really powerful ministry up at Shepherd of the Hills, um, some ministry that I've deeply enjoyed and loved. Mm. Um, and it's been a good utilization of some of the gifts that I naturally bring to the table okay um, as a pastor
0: so very good and particular challenges up there yeah
2: so um as the saints uh if any of the saints up there listen to this and even some of the saints around the the Pecos circuit here as they listen to this um will probably recognize there were there were some some pastoral care uh how shall I say it um Violations. I don't. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. One of the previous pastors that was there for a very long time uh, had deeply bio- has violated the trust of the congregation in a profound way. Um, and thank uh, thanks be to God, uh, a pastor like uh, Pastor Tom Sheck was able to come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, some other vacancy pastors were able to come in. Uh, some of the the uh, circuit pastors here in the Pecos circuit were able to step in and help the congregation uh, transition into a into a much more healthy space, um, and especially a healthy space in its relationship to the pastoral office of the pastoral ministry. Okay. All right. And uh, and so that was an initial challenge coming in. Yes. Probably our next big challenge is we've been blessed. Uh, we've been blessed with some some opportunities to grow. We've been blessed with some space to grow into in terms mm. of land. Um, and probably our next big challenge is what's the, what's the congregation going to look like five years from now, ten years from now? Yes. Uh, what's it physically going to look like on yeah. that location? What's the congregation physically or, you know, what's the congregation makeup going to look like sure. in Rio Doso five, ten years from now? And, are uh,
0: people moving into Rio Doso right now? So it's a pretty fluid population mm-hmm. um,
2: because it is a resort town, because uh, there are a lot of retirees that move in. There's always kind of people moving in, but there's always people moving out. Yeah. And so we make a big deal of that at okay. um, Shepherd. Um, when people come into our, uh, our congregation, our community, we celebrate that. But when people leave and, and they're headed to a new community or back to an old community because that's where they came from, we celebrate that just as much. Okay. Uh, trusting that uh, their time walking with us as disciples um, in that time they grew. Um, and that they'll be able to bless the next place that they're in.
0: Um, Very good. So,
2: yeah, um, it's been a a fun process to watch.
0: Excellent. Now, you are a circuit visitor. Mm -hmm. What is a circuit visitor?
2: Yeah, so that's kind of hard to define. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I view the circuit visitor position as serving a local set of congregations on behalf of, you know, our quote-unquote bishop, the district president right so he has ultimate responsibility of overseeing us as pastors under his care um, and that i'm i'm an extension of that and so um, so one of the things that i see as circuit visitor is um, helping the pastors make sure that they're cared for and uh, making sure that they're provided adequately for um, and you know sending things up and down the, the chain of command so to speak Um, but also helping congregations, um, I'm the local representative of the, of the district to those congregations as well. So helping them through the official processes that we have within our synod, like Mm. the call process, conflict resolution or anything like that, uh, to make sure the congregations, um, have an adequate voice as well. Um, I think it's particularly important in our context because our district is so spread out, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, that our positions as circuit visitors become even more essential um, because we are the only representation to the district um, for these congregations for hmm. the most part um, and to the pastors. And so um, it's certainly... Being a circuit visitor, being a vice president, being a district president—none of those positions, I don't think any pastor should be like. That's what I want to do. <laughs> um, you're a pastor. You want to be a pastor of a congregation. These, right. These, this is our passion. Um, but when you're called upon to serve in that way, it's important to do so diligently. Yes. And and that's how I see it. As I'm at this point at, during this time, I'm called to serve uh, in this way to these congregations. In in
0: southeastern New Mexico very good and that sort of begs the question at, during your time as circuit visitor, spending a lot of time with these different congregations uh, what are your thoughts about our circuit here uh,
2: I have learned to appreciate our circuit in a way I don't think I ever learned to appreciate um, the circuits that I was participating in back in St. Louis um, and I think part of that is just because we're so spread out uh, so uh, my personal connection to the rest of you as pastors Um, is even more important to me now, Uh, and I value that time so much uh, to be able to spend with you guys as pastors. Um, But also, um, it's been a marvel to see how unique each of the congregations across the Pecos Circuit are, Mm -hmm. um, to learn what it means to celebrate that uniqueness, but also to learn to celebrate, wow, there are so many similarities. Yes, Um, Passion for the gospel, passion for reaching those who don't know Jesus, uh, passion for making sure we 're being smart about the the steps we take the directions and moves we make um and and that people care mm. um, you know there's there's probably one there's probably one thing I struggle with more than anything else and that's apathy when people are apathetic um, and I have not found that to be the case in our circuit mm. um, People are not apathetic and I can work with conflict. I can work with differing viewpoints. I can work with a lot of things. The one thing you really can't work with is apathy because there's nothing there. Right. Um, And so I've really appreciated that that our congregations, our pastors uh, in the Pecos circuit here care. Mm -hmm. um, Even though congregations inevitably disagree, pastors inevitably disagree, um, there's a care and concern on each one of us, uh, Mm -hmm. from each one of us and from each congregation that I've learned to appreciate in a pretty profound way over the last, I think, two years I've been serving as circuit visitors? Yeah. So something like that.
0: Something like so, that. That's right. that's right. Since I arrived here in uh, at that's Emmanuel right. Lutheran Church in, in Roswell. Yeah. Now, today we're also joined by your son, Titus. Yeah. Hey, we're Titus. How are you doing? Come on uh-huh. over. Good. How do you like living in Rio Doso?
3: Um. Sit it's very different. Sit over here, but... As a, like, as in uh, Missouri, like, I was younger then, and I don't remember as much, but everyone was always very distant. Like, we had maybe a hundred people in each service, and, like, we were feeling, like, the back of the church, like, during Christmas, and that's, so, like, we were getting, like, major amounts of people, but not everyone knew everyone. Yeah. Like, you, like, I could, if I walked up to one out of ten people, there's a very big chance you would not know that person.
0: But that's different here.
3: because yes. here, we might be small communities, but you literally know everyone in that, um, congregation. And you might not, like, you might not be BFS with them, but you're comfortable talking to them. And, uh... Also, everyone just in here is a lot more, like, open to people coming in. Like, if a person came in in Missouri, Mm. no one would notice. It's just, oh, another person's here, whoopee. Yeah, right. But here, it's like, another person comes, like, they're going to meet everyone in that church. Because that's, like, what a small church is about. Yeah. And also, what's easier with the small church is you get to know that other, like, church. Like... All across um, New Mexico, like, my dad, me, my family, like, we've met all the pastors. We've met a fair amount of the people there. Like, in uh, Missouri, I barely knew, like, another pastor other Mm. than Pastor Dave, the main pastor. Right. Right. Like, the only churches I went to was um, Trinity and my dad's church that he helped create. No one else was, like, in and out within us, like, coming in, trying to help out, whatever. It was always just because it's so big, Mm. there are disadvantages to that, to communication, to friendship, to coming together.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've also discovered that in the smaller towns... Folks uh, get to know a little bit more about you, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's yeah. great to have those human connections. Absolutely, we've also found in the in the small towns uh, in the smaller
2: community, um, uh, the the discipline to com- uh, the discipline plan to obey the eighth commandment is even stronger. Right, right. It takes more work because everybody's
0: connected to everybody. Yes,
2: which is wonderful, um, and that's not a bad thing. But you really do have to be disciplined to make sure you're obeying the eighth commandment, and it's yes. and it's 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 kind of fun to see like the community in action in that way, You'd be like, yeah, there are actual consequences to That's not right. obeying the eighth commandment,
0: right? The eighth commandment is, of course, uh, you shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. What that means is that our neighbor has the gift from God of a reputation, mm-hmm. of having a good name, and it is our Christian duty to protect the good name of our neighbors, whoever that neighbor may be. So we're always careful with what we say say about our our friends and our family and even our enemies when we're Mm -hmm. speaking to to folks, uh, uh, you know, in in our towns. All right. So we're also joined today by Caleb Flammy, my son, who is, how old are you, Caleb? You're three. Can you tickle and laugh? No, he wants to be quiet today, but that's okay. You're listening to Voice of the Pecos. Thanks once again, Pastor Rust, for yeah, joining man. us. And thank you, Titus, for for your comments here. We really appreciate having you on. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, Brian. Welcome back to Voice of the Pecos. Uh, joining me once again is Pastor Kyle Brown of uh, Our Savior Lutheran Church in Lovington and Grace Lutheran Church of Hobbs. We don't have a lot of time left for this segment, and so we're going to do slap in the face theology. We're going to give you exactly what you need in about six minutes, and you can go and talk to your pastor or go to Bible study for more. So, Pastor Brown, tell me, what are three things that I need to know about Pentecost, which is coming up this Sunday?
1: Okay, that's a tall order, Brian, but here it goes. Three things in three minutes. The first thing is that Pentecost, if you want to read about it, of course, you can read about it in Acts chapter 2. It's the day that the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles, causes them to remember all the things that Jesus spoke with them, and from there they go out and they preach and they teach Jesus to all the world. Pentecost itself, of course, is... Uh, Not just a Christian holiday, in fact. There were all these Jews from all around the world who spoke natively many different languages because this is a great festival, the Festival of Weeks. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 23. uh, And it is the, the ingathering of the first of the wheat harvest. So that's why all those people are there in Jerusalem. And that is the day that the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles and they are sent out into the world. It is then, you could say, It's the birthday of the church, right? The first day that the the church really goes out to preach. Now, that second point then focusing on the church is, well, now, wait a minute. What exactly is the church? And uh, that's a big question here and now, uh, especially as we're seeing a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, restrictions on church gatherings, uh, as a lot of churches are... Uh, especially we're seeing among our evangelical and non-denom friends uh, that they are very happy to move online into an online platform. Uh, Well, the thing is that a lot of the way that the church is being viewed is from a very worldly perspective, and that is to say that the church is not just a a gathering of a bunch of individuals who happen to have the same interests and ideas about God. It's not a, a glorified book club for the Bible. Uh, it's not a bunch of people who have the same motivations and movements and ideas. It's a lot more than that. So that's what the church is, is not. Well, what is the church then? Well, the, in order to understand the church, uh, you've got to start with God, of course. And, and we, what we see is that God the Father God the Father loved his creation so much. He, he wanted a people for himself, right? And he loved his creation so much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, into the world, who Jesus then loved us so much that he would give his own life for us, take on our sin, die, take on that punishment uh, for us. And then, of course, from there, the Holy Spirit is sent out to preach and teach about how much God loves us in exactly that way. And then it's the Holy Spirit himself, in fact, who gathers us together and who enlightens us, right, with uh, that message of the gospel that God loves us so much in that way. And it is the Holy Spirit himself then that enkindles the faith in our hearts and the love toward God uh, that we, the people of God, have. And this is actually what the church is. It's the people of God who, who hear of the love that God has for them and who are gathered together in the Holy Spirit, uh, and, and, uh, in that way are brought together and bound together by the very love of God. And from there, of course, the church goes out and, uh, the church through the Holy Spirit is able to love God and through the Holy Spirit is able to love our neighbors, even as ourselves. So, so a lot of people will see that, uh, the church does good deeds in the world, right? That the church, uh, helps the homeless, or, or has soup kitchens, or, or uh, helps with uh, backpack kid kits for, for, for lunches for kids, you know, these kind of things. But that's, that's actually all, it's just fruit from the tree, right? That's, that's not the main thing, in fact. The main thing is that we are a gathering of the, the body of Christ uh, in the Holy Spirit. So that, I guess, is somewhere along the way. I've got my points muddled up, but that is quickly as I could. Three very important things about uh, Pentecost
0: and the church in general. That's great. Hey, I got a question though. How can I find Earth? right? How can I find the gathering together of the body of Christ?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So, uh, what we as Lutherans like to say is that well, there are certain marks of the church. There's a certain way that you can know that hey, this is the church on Earth. And those marks, I think a lot of you Lutherans listening will be familiar with them. They are none other than the word and the sacraments. That is to say that they are the word of God where it is rightly preached. Not just the word of God, in fact, uh, but the gospel of God, right? The forgiveness of sins where that is preached. Uh, And this is, of course, why we Lutherans are, are so big on law and gospel and distinguishing those two from each other. Uh, so it's where the, where the gospel is purely taught and preached and where the sacraments then are rightly administered. And those are the marks of the church of God on this earth. Not, not all, the, not all the, 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 the good works that people might do in the community. Any 501c3 or any individual can go out and do many good things, right? That, that's just extra benefit for the neighbor. But the true marks of the church are that gospel of God and his holy
0: sacraments. So that's that's an amazing thing that uh, with all these other organizations and corporations, which are, you know, public bodies, Mm -hmm. they're outwardly oriented and serving, you know, the members or serving the community at large. But really what defines the church isn't what we do for men, but in fact, what God does for us.
1: Absolutely. The divine service,
0: God's service to us, not not our service or praise
1: that we're rendering to him.
0: So awesome. That is really great. All right. Hey, look, coming up the week after Pentecost is Holy Trinity Sunday. It's the Sunday that we listen to Everybody's our favorite. Yeah, it's the, the everybody's favorite uh, creed, the Athanasian creed. And I, we say that tongue in cheek, everybody's favorite, because I guarantee that this is the creed that we say once a year that causes about 20% of the congregation after the service to come up to the pastor to say, now, hold on pastor. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I know what's going on there. (laughs) And the reason why is because of uh, three verses in the Athanasian Creed. Mm -hmm. The first one says whoever desires to be saved must above all hold the Catholic faith. And then number two, it says, whoever does not keep it whole and undefiled will without doubt perish eternally. And then there's the 40th verse, the final verse, This, after they go through an exposition of the Trinity and the person of Christ, they say, this is the Catholic faith. Man, they use the C word. (laughs) Whoever does not believe it, faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. Whoa. People people get uh, worked up about that. And and, and, uh, traditionally in the Lutheran church, there have been a number of Lutherans over the years who have cried foul here and said, this isn't right. Mm -hmm. We can't hold ourselves to this creed. Uh, but of course we can, uh, because whenever we say that uh, that uh, whoever desires to be saved must hold to the Catholic faith, we don't mean the Roman Catholic faith. We mm-hmm. don't mean the Pope's faith. Catholic is a word that simply means universal. And this is the universal faith that is proclaimed in every place where Jesus, just as you were saying, where, where, where Jesus gathers his body together around word and sacrament.
1: Those marks of the church.
0: Right. And, and the word isn't a general word, but a specific word. And what do you learn through the word? Two things. That God is both one and triune. And the second thing you learn is that Christ is both God and man. That is a summary of all Christian teaching. If you, under, if you understand what the Bible says about God being one and at the same time Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and if you pay attention to when the Bible is speaking about uh, the Son of God being true God, and also at the same time miraculously and beyond our understanding, true man, then you have everything that belongs to the preaching and comfort of the gospel. This is why we take it so seriously. I mean, look, when, when our God, the Father... Reveals himself as father. He simultaneously reveals himself. Uh, the, our God uh, reveals himself as, as uh, also the son. Uh, the son is begotten of the father from all eternity. And that's not something that we just make up in the New Testament. That's something that's taught by, by Psalm 2. Mm-hmm. E- uh, eternally, the father has said to the son, today I have begotten you. you know? And today I give you all authority, power, and might. And so that's the preaching of the Old Testament. You have in the very first verses of the Old Testament this this uh, 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 this assertion that God is three and yet one, and so it says in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth, Genesis one one right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you don't hear oftentimes in our English translations is that there's a difference between the subject and the verb there, a, a conspicuous difference. The verb is for a one pr- is for is, is uh, a sing- in the singular, meaning that the action is taken by uh, a singular individual, right? And the word Elohim is in a plural, that means which implies more than one. Right, and that means God, of course. And so, Yeah, and so that's a mystery from the very beginning of the Bible, that why would God be Elohim, plural, and yet whenever we hear about this God working and acting, it's always in the singular sense. So there are not three gods, the Bible says from the very beginning. That's what the Holy Spirit has revealed through Moses. But there is one God working and being. And, and, uh, but there are, there's a multiplicity in the oneness of God that is inexplicable. And it's slowly revealed in the Old Testament between the Father and the Son and the conversation between the Father and the Son. Uh, like Psalm 2, you hear the conversation of the Father speaking to the Son. And then in the New Testament, the the conversation between the father and the son becomes explicit because now the son is among us.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And he's made man in the person of Christ, uh, born of Mary, called Jesus. And he says, uh, whoever hears me, hears the father. Right. Remember when Philip, we talked about this in a previous episode, when Philip said to Jesus, show me the father. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) And Jesus says, Philip. I've been with you this long and you still don't know me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That is, uh, the way that we have access to the Father is through the Son. The Son reveals to us the hearts of the Father, and the hearts of the Father is, as you quite eloquently said in your six minutes, love. Uh, The Father loves and sends his Son to redeem sinners uh, so that the Holy Spirit can take the fruits of that redemption and spread it to the ends of the earth, which is really the miracle of Pentecost, right? Absolutely. So getting to know your triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is getting to know the gospel. And getting to know the gospel cannot be done apart from knowing that God is both three in one and also that, that Christ is both true God and true man. Unless you have all of those things together, it's not the Catholic faith. That is, it's not the universal Christian Faith that saves, uh, and and, and uh, here at the very end, we will we'll return to I, I think finally to verse forty of the Athanasian Creed. It says, "Whoever does not believe it firmly and fully cannot be saved." Thanks be to God uh, that your baptism gives you this faith uh, firmly and faithfully. <laughs> Or, or firmly and fully, I should say.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so it's not like it, I've, I've heard the question asked, well, pastor, isn't this creed saying that until I memorize the, this particular creed, I can't be saved? I say, no, of course not. What the creed is saying is that you have to trust in your baptism. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because that's how the triune God wants to reveal himself to you. Uh, it, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in the water of baptism. If you have baptism and you trust that in this water is forgiveness and there is salvation, then you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, not in three gods, but in one, united in their work, the Father, in the, in, in, united in, in the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to, to save you, you know, uh, and to bless you. So the Athanasian Creed is really a, a baptism creed. Which is the same as the Nicene Creed, which is the one you, one you say on Sunday when you have the Lord's Supper. And, it's, and that is just an expansion upon the, the Apostles' Creed, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like when you go to Bible class and your pastor invariably goes off in a tangent. He says like 20 different things about one thing. And you're like, how can he even get this much out of this one particular thing? That's well, because that's what happens when you unfold the riches of the biblical text. There's
1: a lot, And there. that's what
0: these three creeds do. Yeah, they unfold the Bible for us. Uh, so this Trinity Sunday, go to your pastor and, and ask him the question. Show me in the Bible where it talks about the Trinity. Perfect. And he will be delighted to answer all of those questions because that's his job. And if he doesn't want to do it, then you should call him out and say, do your job. <laughs> <laughs> at, the, uh, at the risk.
3: Oh,
1: of, uh, as, yeah, go ahead. At the risk of boasting, we actually do have a baptism on Trinity Sunday. So I am very excited that's about funny. that. Ah, oh,
0: wonderful. Yes. Wonderful. Yes. So, okay. Well, I, I think that's all we have for today's lengthy episode, but you know, we only do this thing about once a month, so it seems appropriate. Thank you, Kyle, for joining me today. And also thanks to Pastor uh, Jason Russ there from Rio dos. It was great having him and his son Titus on the show today. And uh, uh, Kyle, any last thoughts before we take off? Not too much.
1: God's blessings be with you all as uh, we continue this reopening process here in New Mexico and uh, with all the churches as we continue on our way.
0: All right. God's peace be with you all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.